Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. This week we're talking democracy with Martin Moore. Martin is the director of the Centre for the Study of Media, Communications and Power at King's College London. He's also the author of the book Democracy Hacked, Political Turmoil and Information Warfare in the Digital Age. We're going to be taking a look at how long it might be until there are schools in this country run by Google, why nihilists are some of the most successful communicators of the modern era, and why we should look to countries like Taiwan and Estonia for a spot of optimism. Uh, Martin, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, You are the director for the Centre of the Study of Media, Communications and Power at King's College London. I wonder which of uh, media, communications and power... uh, is the one that most grabs your attention and kind of most explains your journey to find yourself sat in this seat today? <laughs> well, um, I suppose uh, my journey is is mostly media and communication, but the one that um, I'm fascinated by and that seems to perhaps not surprisingly grab most people's attention is, is the power. And that's the one I've been, I suppose, uh, obsessing over in, in the sense that I, um, I think power is shifting enormously uh, and I'm, I'm really trying to understand how it's shifting and the impact that it's having I'm, Before I ask you the next question I'm going to explain to our listeners that we have the builders in the studio today um, and they are literally on the roof so if you hear any strange noises in the background during this episode please forgive us uh, but there's very little we can do about it um, and on the nature of power shifting is it shifting in your view from a particular place to a particular place is it diversifying what kind of direction of travel is power taking at the moment well I, th- I think that this is part of the confusion i think people people think that power is uh necessarily going from one group to another i think actually what we're seeing is power in flux um and certainly from my perspective it's very much a consequence of the transformation of our communication systems so we have seen literally a revolution in our communication systems and and when you see people's ability to communicate people's ability to act collectively uh people's ability to um act politically changing then it's not surprising that you also get consequent political change now 
there is you know a bunch of people have talked about uh, power sort of dissipating from from the top. Um, Moses' name and various other people have talked about the end of power. Uh, I think that's that's a misunderstanding. I think I think actually, as I say, what we're seeing is we're seeing power flowing away from certain areas to certain areas, and then back again, and then and then and then to different to different parts. So I mean, it's 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 an amazingly um, uh, complex, fluid, um, and dynamic um, uh, sphere of power. And I, in that dynamism, that's what's creating an awful lot of the volatility, uh, a lot of the fear, um, and a lot of the understandable anxiety about where we're going to end up. And are people, is anybody on the receiving end, or does anybody have more power or any power that they've not been used to having? Um, up until now, so if it's if it's if it's going in different places, is anybody empowered by this change? Because it, it often feels, I think, to people like there's a loss of power. Well, the thing that particularly struck me about about uh, those who seem to have benefited unduly in the last few years is that it's been the nihilists. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's 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 been the wreckers. So if you like the. Um, some of the tools that we now have empower the hecklers, they empower the, the, those that literally want to bring things down, whether that things are the establishment, institutions, um, norms, uh, civilities. You know, if you want to sort of disrupt, uh, if you want to create, do creative destru- destruction uh, in the Schumpeterian way, then the, the present time is a very opportune moment to do it. And it's funny that you touch on the nihilists and the destroyers because in the first section of your book you talk about you talk about Robert Mercer, you talk about the 4chan movement, you talk about Breitbart and Steve Bannon um, and the Russian influence on, in, in, on Twitter in particular and other states as well, which are all themes that we've talked about a lot on Government versus the Robots. And I wanted to ask really whether your sense is that it was a master plan in that these people got their heads together and really thought about what they were doing? Or was it a kind of fluke of circumstance that several people were trying to do similar things at the same time? Do you, which way would you lean on the answer to that question? Well, I'd answer it in a slightly different way. I would say that, that this, this transition we're going through in, in, in the transformation of communications creates lots of opportunities. Um, and it's within those opportunities that various individuals, uh, organizations, states um, have, have moved Quickly, and some in some cases, I think what I try and do when I look at Russia is show that actually, <laughs> I mean, Russia and indeed Putin are doing what they've done for many, many, many years. It's just that the systems now allow them to do it much more effectively and successfully than they did in the past. Um, but in the case, one of the, the the most interesting aspects of the, the first part of the book I found was that I was trying to understand exactly to your question, trying to understand. Why, in some cases, these incredibly disparate groups of people, people who, you know, from the outside shared very, very little in terms of ideology, in terms of background, circumstance, why they were coming together to 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 make a particular political change. And, and the example I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of especially is, is, is what I call the kind of 4chan collective, which is 4chan and the various um, areas around it, the, the sites around it and the subreddits, etc., and in that instance, one of the things that I found was that they were actually coaxed into um, uh, the Trump campaign. They were coaxed in uh, very deliberately by Breitbart and by Bannon and Yiannopoulos. Um, and, and, and they did it by, by, by appealing to them on two of the only sort of coherent ideological 
um, strands that really pulled this enormously dispersed, um, disparate group together, which was um, uh, freedom, but a very, very fundamentalist, purist view of freedom, and especially centered around freedom of speech. And the second is around sovereignty, and particularly the idea of this is my space. I'm talking about online now, especially, but this is my space. This is uh, we make our rules here, and we don't like interference from outsiders. Um, and it was those two particular ideologies which uh, they used uh, uh, quite consciously to bring them into the campaign. Uh, particularly, 4chan isn't something that we've talked about on the show before, and I did enjoy um, your explanation of the kind of meme meme the meme movement and the kind of malicious meme movement for want of a better way of putting it um, that I think cast light on something that I hadn't thought about before. I did want to take the opportunity to ask you, you obviously work with students um, and I wonder which is the fairer characterization of their media tastes, if it's okay to characterize their media tastes, because sometimes I think we think that there's a real appetite for slow, deep news and there's this tortoise website that's just been established which looks very interesting Um, and then other times you kind of assume young people are all just lapping up the canary Um, and I, I wonder what your sense is of how your students today are consuming media is it you're fairly typical in the same way i would imagine where it's a hybrid of online news and kind of stuff that's from things that used to be papers um or are there trends that you're seeing that that, that perhaps others haven't yet identified well it's not print newspapers <laughs> <laughs> um uh when i ask them where they both where they get their news and how they uh sort of navigate between what they think is credible trustworthy etc uh what always Surprises me, or has in the last couple of years, is how not just eclectic their tastes are, but how they very deliberately seem to cross-reference. So when there's a story they're interested in, they'll check a couple of other sites to see what the other sites are saying, and they will compare and contrast. I think much more certainly than my generation did. Um, so so uh, that that certainly um, gives me a lot of hope, <laughs> hope in the in the kind of media savvy of the next generation, because I th- I think they are very aware uh, of the whole. Issues around framing, issues around uh, a particular political perspectives. So, so yes, they do. They do have a, a pretty broad range. And you, in the book, go on to talk about the power of some of the social media companies or data companies, as I've heard guests previously call them. Now said we should stop calling them social media companies. Um, and the Facebook stories were fairly well understood, I think, because of Cambridge Analytica. Um, and we'll touch on Google in a moment. And I, I really enjoyed your chapter on Twitter, on the unbearable lightness of Twitter, um, but was struck by an argument I think you were making, and correct me if I paraphrase this wrongly, that the presence of Twitter seems to have accelerated the removal of local news networks and made, and therefore perhaps eroded some degree of trust in a local environment for citizens? Not, not exactly. What, what I was trying to do there was... Was set the growth of Twitter and the use of Twitter um, in parallel with the decline of news, and particularly local news, but not just local news, uh, essentially sort of what the Americans call beat reporting, so the sort of on the ground shoe leather reporting. Um, and it wasn't to uh, it was it was it was not to ascribe blame necessarily to Twitter. It was to try and to illustrate how, uh, in many ways, actually, it was trying to show how our behaviour has changed both both our in the sense of the public but particularly in the sense of journalists behavior has changed uh, and that that change has um, 
kind of pull the ground, pull, pull the rug out from under the feet of, 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 a, of a type of news we used to take for granted in the 20th century, um, which is that slightly dull, slightly kind of repetitive, but incredibly democratically important. Um, uh, day by day reporting of courts and local authorities and etc. So, so I think I think you know perhaps perhaps you know I didn't I didn't explain that properly in the chapter, but 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 I think it, it was more about behaviour and how our behaviour has changed. And the fascinating thing that I found is not I mean this is from my own observation, but it was it was certainly seemed to be borne out by a lot of the research that's been done the last five years was was how. Um, Important and central, Twitter has become to journalists and, and journalism, and, and and within newsrooms, how Twitter is is almost obsessed over. Now, that might have changed a little bit in the last eighteen months, um, uh, especially as some people have left it because of you know issues around trolling and harassment, etc. But but actually, I think it's it, there's, there's a I think I think one journalist referred to Twitter as like crack cocaine. You know, there, there is a sort of a an addictive quality to Twitter for journalists, um, uh, and and that can't help but change the way they see news and the way they see the news cycle and the way they see uh, news developments and, and, and the attention they therefore then pay to other more sort of foundational questions and issues. And has it changed the way they see news or has it changed the way they present news? And I ask that because I, I, to me, and it's an argument I made before, news is very much human nature. News is what news is because humans are what humans are. Um, and I do very much accept that the kind of the appeal of clickbait and such like and and um, Twitter as a kind of discursive uh, outrage driven mechanism to drive traffic has changed the way that journalists present news. But has it changed the constituent elements of news as well? Well, I mean, there's two aspects of that, I think, one of which is around news as novelty. And there was a fascinating study earlier this year by MIT. It got quite a lot of press about the uh, they'd done a huge study of, of how true and false news travels via Twitter. And it was uh, millions of tweets since 2006. Um, and they found that false news traveled much, much further, much deeper, um, and tended to stick around for longer. And, and the, they went through all these different various criteria to try and assess why this was was it you know the people who were tweeting it was it the environment in which it was tweeted was it the and none of, there was didn't seem to be a correlation a particular correlation with any of those the the one thing that they could find which was consistent um which completely makes sense when you think about it was that the the false news was just more novel than the other news it was newer people hadn't heard it because it was invented mm. um and and you know, you know news is new that's that's what it is uh, and so i think um one of the aspects of Twitter is is the the constant sort of I suppose cycle of novelty and a cycle of uh, has not only sped up the news cycle um, but has changed our uh, kind of assessment of what is news and what isn't news and and and, and the degree to which news has substance or doesn't have substance and so it sort of it feels to me like it's removed lots of the underlying pillars some of the some of the foundational stuff on which on which news would be kind of accreted and built and instead we're sort of almost floating uh, above the news and we're, we're, we're grabbing it. I think um, uh, one academic called it sort of a, a bit like um, you know, news has become more snack food um, than a meal. And we're constantly snacking and we're constantly looking for the next um, uh, little bit of um, you know, twiglets or crisps or nuts or whatever, whatever you want to, analogy you want to make. Um, so uh, so I, think, I think in that sense, it, it has 
altered the way in which we 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 look for news, we understand news, and we think about news. Um, and and that also I think makes it quite difficult to justify sometimes spending an awfully long time in one place on one issue and and not talking about it or just just trying to understand it and trying to re- reflect on it or trying to kind of navigate it. Um, uh, and so just yesterday actually I was talking to. Uh, uh, someone uh, in local news who was saying that um, often you'll spend hours if not days in local council meetings uh, and if you don't know the kind of the the format of the meetings if you don't know the way in which they create the agendas if you don't know then you don't realise that they've just either completely missed or or skated over some very 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 substantial issue um and uh, and that's the issue you need to understand you have to have been to the previous three days or the previous five hours to understand that they've missed that and they've missed that for a very good reason because because it's scandalous or etc so i think i think i think that is that is also one of the problems that we have with the new information environment and i enjoyed also your sort of exposition of Google, who are an organisation that sometimes seems to fly under the radar a little in these conversations, which is, I think, surprising given the fact that they're very much not under the radar when you look at the, the space of the internet. Um, and you talked about a little bit about ad brokering and ad exchanges. Can you um, just explain a little bit how perhaps that ad brokering connects to the conversation we've just had about Twitter and changes in news and, and novelty? I'll I'll do my best because this is that that chapter that was was my attempt to kind of get to grips with this world of digital advertising of of, of ad tech as the industry likes to call it and and in many ways it was one of for me one of the hardest chapters to research and write because very little has been written about it and and those that know about it I think you can count on the fingers of a couple of hands or really know about it really really get it because it is so complex and so Byzantine. And the, the the reason for that is partly that it is um, the scale. Uh, so you know, it is in the case of um, you know, it, it's dominated by Google and Facebook, but it is it is it is world spanning. Uh, it's built on this whole idea of um, openness, automation, um, and and algorithmically driven. Um, so such that they can uh, this is this is the pitch at least they can say that an advertiser can reach almost anyone at any time across the world with the right message at the right moment to try and uh, uh, make a purchase. Now, of course, to, to cre- we've been, we've, it's, it's taken about two decades to create that system, uh, and I tried to sort of map how it evolved over the last two decades because what we've seen is that as it's evolved from, from the system that was intended originally to be a way to make advertising more relevant, um, to make it more um, efficient for advertisers so you, they were only paying when someone clicked rather than someone saw something. So so what started as some quite um, simple and understandable and, and in many ways justifiable uh, rationales for changing the way advertising worked became over the course of the last two decades this huge, huge mass surveillance system because the only way that it works is that if they track us all all the time, and and it's not just online; <laughs> it's it's also offline because they're trying to do this thing which they they talk about a lot, which is which is attribute. So they're endlessly trying to attribute a purchase or attribute uh, an action to a particular because then they can figure out who to credit, you know, which ad to credit, and which. Um, so so it has led to a system which 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 cover, covers 
billions of people, covers the whole world, it, it means that you are being tracked all the time, not just when you're on Google or Facebook, but across the web and within your email and everywhere else, such that um, at the moment you are considering purchasing something or thinking about who to vote for or thinking about, um, they can throw your details onto an ad exchange and allow advertisers to bid for your attention um, for whatever they particularly think it's worth. And uh, the, the highest bidder um, on the so-called victory auctions um, will win that, 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 that auction and, and gets to show you their specific message at that specific time. Um, so, so, of course, what it means in practice is that it's, it's, it's a system that can only be run by corporations as gargantuan as sort of Google and Facebook. Um, and it can only be run as I say, on this kind of fantastically intrusive uh, tracking surveillance model. And you use the language of empire to talk about Google. Presumably that was a very deliberate decision. Well, it, it is a deliberate decision, not least because, you know, again, it, what started out as a way to pay the bills, the way to pay for search, um, then became um, a way for Google to expand into lots of other areas, Maps and, and, and Chrome and everything else, and then became a way in which Google could, could take virtually take over advertising. So, so you know, the banner ads, for example, at the top of websites. Now, it's really hard um, to, to, to say that those, that those banner ads, when you see a car ad at the top of a website, um, uh, and it's just because of you, you demographically, and it's got nothing to do with what you're reading or nothing to do, it's very hard to say <laughs> that that kind of conforms to the original model, which was to give you something really relevant and what you're looking for, etc. Um, but Google owns a huge proportion of those banner ads because, because it was expanding and expanding and expanding such that it was taking over essentially almost all the real estate uh, on most screens that you go to on the commercial web, the open commercial web outside, outside Facebook and the closed platforms. Um, so, so it does feel a lot like an empire um, that, they've, that they've created because it's very it's very difficult to exist on the web as a commercial entity without being part of, in some way, part of that empire. I'm not going to move on from Google just yet, but I'm going to move on in terms of the book to talking about uh, some of the kind of alternative futures that you sketch out around um, platform democracies, surveillance democracies, and kind of rehacked democracies, perhaps the, last, the latter being the most optimistic. Um, on platform democracies, we've touched briefly on the show before about platform, you know, platform technology and kind of civic use of platform technologies. Um, you talked about Google's health work and you talked about Facebook, I think, education work and that also Google as well. And it struck me that what you were really setting out was a world in which big social media companies increasingly start to take on the functions of the state. Um, is that something that you think is a realistic prospect? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I think it's happening already. I mean, I think it's, it's that they are... The, the, the vision seems to be from the platform's perspective, and this is this is this is you know, reading into their statements. It, it, often they're not explicit about this, but reading into what they say and and what they do um, is they like to be the gateway to lots of our public services, whether that's healthcare, whether it's education, whether it's transport, um, energy, housing, uh, and to to give just a couple of examples. I mean the um, the recent uh, Apple Watch, the the, the new Apple Watch which has a, an electrocardiogram, so it can, can uh, keep track of your heart. And, um, and it was, it was, when it was launched, um, people talked about Apple trying to appeal to over 65s, and this was, I thought that was a real misunderstanding of actually what Apple's doing. Apple, what Apple wants to do, Apple wants to become um, uh, the way in which you track your health. It already obviously has the fitness apps, and et cetera, um, such that you are constantly keeping track of not just your heart rate but your fitness rate and your 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 um, blood pressure etc and you're storing that on the platform uh, you are then using apps on the platform to self-diagnose and if necessary you're feeding your personal health data to your elected medical representative to decide um, to, to get advice on what to do about it so it's 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 this sort of um it's a it's a very self focused healthcare system built around your data and built around the platform. And certainly Apple's talked about how important it sees health being to its future. Um, Google has invested very heavily uh, in, in, in aspects of health, particularly with, with, uh, with DeepMind uh, and with other organizations like Verily and Calico. Um, Amazon has, uh, has, has now gone into healthcare as well and has talked about distance diagnosis and delivering medicines and pills, et cetera. Um, so so that, that seems to be the competitive space that they're moving into. And, and, and I don't know if you heard the Matt Hancock, our health secretary's speech earlier this week, but when he started talking about healthcare, he started talking about very similar things. He started talking about self-diagnosis. He started talking about using um, technology to do distance diagnosis. And start. So, so, so I think there is absolutely a sort of um, both from a platform perspective and a political perspective, there is uh, a momentum towards a uh, much more technologically driven public services. Um, and, and, and the platforms themselves see, see their future role as being, as being the way in which we access those public services. You know, for, for them, if you take healthcare or education, it's not whether or not uh, uh, the future is technological and the future is in the platform, it's which platform. And they'd rather it was them than their competitor. And you, happily, you've given me a chance to plug the second ever episode of Government versus the Robots, which I think, if memory serves me, was called A Doctor on Your Wrist, and it's all about wearable healthcare. So um, if anybody's listening and wants to, to route their way back to the second ever episode of Government versus the Robots for a bit more on that, do go for it. You also write about or touch on um, the kind of inherent democratic nature or the perceived inherent democratic nature 
of technology. And it strikes me that there's a paradox at the heart of this, which is around the democratizing potential of tech, but actually the, the way in which it requires power and control to be very much held in one place. Do you think tech does have an inherently democratizing effect or is it very much um or, or are you a kind of tech agnostic in that sense well i think or pessimist perhaps <laughs> a lot of the problem here i think is 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 this this use of the word democracy in the sense that it's what was it uh bernard crick called it the most one of the most promiscuous words in politics uh it can be used in so many different ways and if you look at especially google's but but all the platforms to a certain extent they use the word democratization and uh, uh, uh very freely and i I was trying to understand what they really meant by that. And it struck me that it's a very commercial interpretation of democratization uh, in the sense that they seem to essentially be saying that they will lower the price and lower the access to services such that many more people can use them. Um, and should they not like them, then they can go elsewhere. Now, that's a very particular <laughs> kind of interpretation of democratization, uh, uh, and it's a very market-driven one. Uh, and clearly, it's not applicable when you when you start to think about other aspects of democracy and other aspects of decision making, and, and especially other aspects of liberal democracy, whether it's rule of law, whether it's representation, whether it's so. So, I think um, that's been one of the problems: is that we have misunderstood. Uh, the sort of democratizing effects of these platforms. In fact, um, one of the particular misunderstandings that I that I think happened a few years ago was I think in 2011 during the Arab Spring and 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 some of the related political disruption, um, many uh, countries, especially in the U.S. and especially uh, the Hillary Clinton State Department, chose to interpret that as as um, technology had an inherently democratizing effect. That, that by its nature, the internet would lead to more and more democratic societies, um, because it was because it was disrupting authoritarian regimes, particularly in North Africa and the Middle East. The, the mistake was, I think, to to think that it only disrupted authoritarian regimes. I think that actually, what we've seen is that digital disrupts politics. Uh, it doesn't matter whether your politics is traditional liberal democracy or it's authoritarian. It dis- disrupts the legacy, the existing political systems. Um, and that's what we've seen since then. Um, so I, th- I think, again, it's about interpreting and understanding what one means by democratization and what one means by the technological effects. And you draw on a series of uh, of global examples of how technology can be used for surveillance, either not necessarily within democracy, just within a state. Um, good examples from China on social credit um, and also looking at it's Adar, the... Um, the Adhar, the Indian platform, and thinking a bit around digital identity, which again is a kind of paradoxical in that people need the access, but at the same time they lose perhaps some freedom in gaining the access. Do you, in the same way that you've just set out that tech has disrupted politics as opposed to disrupting a particular type of democracy, it seems to me that with surveillance it is the more authoritarian leaders at the moment who are pioneering the use of statewide technology to deliver services but the potential for that is just as great in liberal democracies do you think that we're ready for that yet i mean i think back to when we tried to share nhs records in the uk and everybody kicked off about it um and actually to do to do things properly that that great question of how much do you trust the government 
comes back in because in many ways it's really clear to see the potential of proper digital identity and digital public services but at the same time it's really quite scary to think about ceding that much control to the extent that you are literally just a number or just a fingerprint Um, and so how do you foresee some of the challenges we will face in liberal democracies around using some of the surveillance technologies that are currently really being pioneered in more authoritarian places we, you mentioned there quite rightly the the you know the problems we've had in the past with governments trying to go on ambitious technological programs and, and, and falling flat in the face and and that's in a way why I try to distinguish between platform democracy and surveillance democracy because in platform democracy we see the sort of uh, incremental um, uh, encroachment of of commercial platforms to taking over the state's roles particularly because they are uh, uh, very able to do that. One of the examples I, I, I sort of cite is this um, uh, sat-nav app, Waze. I don't know if you use Waze. But yeah. so, uh, so Waze, uh, I think about 5 million people in the UK use Waze. So it has an amazing amount of live traffic data, um, so much so that it now partners with Transport for London um, and uh, advises Transport for London on certain sort of traffic movements and helps to nudge drivers towards petrol stations before they go in the Blackwall Tunnel and, and various things like that. And Waze has uh, similar relationships with, I think, about 70 cities across America. So what we're seeing, I think, is that uh, governments traditionally have not been great at technological programs, and I don't think that's going to change any time in the future. But in a way, that might not matter because they can partner with these private organizations. And certainly, if you look across at China, that's what's happened there. I mean, the Chinese government... Uh, it, it announced the social credit idea in 2014, but then it put it out to tender and, and asked for commercial companies to 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 try it and see how it worked. Um, and the one that was first out of the gates uh, and is the one that is the, the dominant one at the moment um, is the Alibaba program. Um, but Alibaba, uh, which is China's kind of equivalent of Amazon, but, but bigger in a way, well, sorry, broader works very closely with the government on that scheme, as it does on on various smart city schemes. Um, So you see this sort of um, gelling or partnership between uh, the state and these very, very large private platforms. Um, And that's where I think we we are in quite a dangerous position in in this country, in the West, Uh, uh, not clearly not in the same position as China and Singapore and various other countries, but that incrementally we could see uh, uh, these partnerships evolving um, such that um, suddenly, you know, before we know it, um, large parts of our lives are datafied and are on the platform and we are being nudged and we are being encouraged and we are being directed. And, and it hasn't really been with any particularly conscious decision making. It hasn't been with any, certainly not with any vote. Um, it's just happened because it was easier and more convenient and it seemed to seem to be effective. So, so that's, I suppose... My my concern is that is that we go in that direction sort of by accident um, and certainly with no democratic discussion. And you use a, a, a great line towards the end of the book about the fact that, that our kind of capacity to represent ourselves through digital technology is now outstripped the way in which we are represented. Yes. Um, and I think you also intimate that there's things you, you, you think need to be done to address that. What are they? Well, I... I... One of the things that, 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 that uh, kept coming back to me over the course of the book, and I suppose one of the things I, I, I hope, was hoping people would leave it with, is that 
the scale of, of the change that we're going through. It really is uh, phenomenal how, imp- uh, how how significant this this change is. Um, I mean, various people have com- talked about the kind of fourth communications transformation. The, you know, the first being uh, language, the second being writing, the third being printing, and this being the fourth. Um, and each has uh, been accompanied by really huge social, political, and economic. Um, change, um, uh, often quite um, violent change. So, so the, the main thing was to, to understand the uh, the scale of it, but then to recognise that if we want to maintain democracy and some of the kind of particularly the values of democracy that we've had in the past, then we need to be thinking politically, not technologically. So we need to start with politics and then come back to technology. I think at the moment we're thinking far too much about um, how do we adapt the platforms? How can we make the platforms more responsible? How can we get them to tweak this? Actually, I think we need to think about what do we want from our politics in this age? Because right now, exactly as you were just, just saying, um, our ability to represent ourselves, our ability to do things using these digital tools um, is far greater than the existing political systems allow us to do. So, so as a consequence, what's happening is people are going around the existing political systems. They're saying, those are ineffective, forget it, let's set up our own thing, let's set up our own movement, let's set up our own news organisation, let's set up, you know, you, you name it, let's do it around the existing system because, because it's better. And that's not, that's not sustainable, that's not, you know, that's not a sign of a, a healthy and productive political system. And so I think we, we have to recognise that and we have to say, well, the political system needs to change. The political system needs to change both to acknowledge the communications transformation we're going through, um, but also to, to make that the technology and the communications work for the politics rather than sort of uh, 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 mugging the politics and, and taking over the politics. So I think we need to reverse, if you like, the, uh, the, um, the kind of current prevailing narrative. And I always try to end on a positive note or at least give guests the opportunity to end on a positive note. Um, and it's, you know, it's clear you did a, a huge amount of research for the book and including looking at parts of the world that I think books that cover similar topics haven't done. What was the most optimistic note that you found in the things that you discovered in the course of writing? What did, and I, and I mean this, because I mean, there were moments when I was quite pessimistic, as you probably got in the book, but what, what did really strike me was that no, nothing is, is preordained. Uh, we are, particularly at this moment, we are at a very peculiar moment where, where we're going through this transition, huge changes happening around us, but we still have the capacity to, to change things ourselves. We still have agency. Uh, and you can see there are places in the world where they are using that agency and they're taking places like Taiwan, uh, which is doing remarkable and interesting things with adapting technologies to try and create a more deliberative political system. You can see that in places like Estonia, which is which is um, become one of the most digitally enabled societies uh, in the world, but but, but enabled in, in, in a way that they're extremely conscious of their Soviet past and so and so very conscious about restraining the state and, and, and empowering the citizen. So, so you can look at experiments, you can look at innovations, you can look at uh, even individual countries where they're, where they're trying to make this change happen. And I, and, I, and I hope and I hope that that expands from there and that, that we take those examples and we take those models and we, we try them here. Martin, thanks very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. That's all for this week. My thanks to Sky Redman, as ever, for her help with the editing and production of this podcast. If you've enjoyed the episode, please do tell your friends all about it, send a few emails, and follow us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S robots. Hey, 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.